Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I am your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Because of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, unfortunately, our 2020 AUS annual meeting was canceled. To try and give you a taste of some of the research you might have seen presented, we've selected a few presentations for our program. For each, I'll interview the author, we'll invite a guest host, we'll discuss the study's findings and their importance. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, or the institutions of any of our guests. I truly hope that you enjoy these interviews and that they can at least partially substitute for the loss of your annual meeting experience. I'm here with Dr. Joaquin Sanchez-Satella from the Mayo Clinic. Joaquin, how are you? Good. I'm doing very well, uh, Peter. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Dr. Robert Tajan from the University of Utah is here as our guest co-host. Bob, how are you? Very good. Thank you, Peter, for having me. We are here to discuss Joaquin's project entitled Primary Reverse Shoulder Arthroplasty. How did medialized and glenoid-based lateralized style prostheses compare at 10 years? Joaquin, can you give us a high-level summary of this project? Uh, yes. So, um, you know, we're all very interested in research and outcomes. And um, at Mayo Clinic, in my institution, we are lucky to have a joint registry that is uh, very comprehensive and accurate. And uh, I had the curiosity to know um, how the reverses that we did early on had performed after 10 years. Um, and um, the way it worked in our institution is that when reverse arthroplasty was released, uh, we used mostly the classic Gramonte-style prosthesis which was the only one approved by the FDA. And the first arthroplasty was done in 2004. And then as the arthroplasty designed by Dr. Mark Frankel, uh, back then called the DJO prosthesis was released, we incorporated that in our practice. And we used both of them um, basically randomly um, by mostly three surgeons. So in the paper, we identified uh, 100 shoulders that were performed between 04 and 08 in our institution. And I have to, um, emphasize the fact that these were our first cases, so probably this includes the learning curve. Back then, we were not fully aware of placing the glenoid component super low or inferior tilt uh, or other things. And also, these were all primaries and mostly for cafeter arthropathy. So this information cannot be extrapolated to current uh, indications that we all use more often, such as sequence of trauma um, or primary OA with severe bone loss or soft tissue imbalance. So thinking about the fact that these were the first 100 we did as primaries, most think after arthropathy, we followed these patients over time and we were lucky to lose very few patients uh, through follow-up. And I think the highlight for me of the paper was that the overall complication and reoperation rate was actually pretty low. You know, so if we just uh, talk about the reoperation rate was between five and 8% and the complication rate was higher between 14 and 20%. And more importantly, glenoid loosening was very uncommon. So I remember when I did my first uh, reverse arthroplasty at Mayo, uh, my mentor, Dr. Coffield, uh, mentioned, you know, I'm very worried because in the past, constrained implants have failed mostly for glenoid loosening. And at least in these patients uh, followed for up to 10 years, uh, loosening of the glenoid was not a problem. And then when comparing the two designs, because we had 56 in the classic Gramonte style group and uh, 44 in the glenoid lateralized group or the DJO prosthesis, um, the main findings that we um, encountered were that uh, with the medialized design, our patients had better active elevation, 
but they also had more notching. And those were the main differences that we found in terms of the two uh, implant designs. Certainly the active forward elevation differences are pretty dramatic. I mean, when I looked at the numbers in your published paper, it's 38 degrees better for the medialized components. One of the things that I think is remarkable is your elevation numbers for lateralized components are actually pretty similar to Frankel's. In his 10 year study published in JBGS, elevation with long-term follow-up was 126 degrees and yours is 119 degrees, which is probably within measurement error. Do you think these findings are a validation of Gramont's concept that distalization and medialization are important to leverage the deltoid to fully elevate the arm? I think so. I think the uh, problem is that the biomechanics of reverse are so complex, you know, that I think we try to sometimes simplify to just the one factor that explains one feature. But I remember when we started to use more of the DGO prosthesis, both Dr. Coffey and myself in conference were talking about the fact that we were noticing that those patients had better rotation but worse elevation. And we didn't know if it was because we were doing different implants or otherwise. Um, but uh, I get the impression that uh, Specifically for floor elevation, uh, classic Gramonte style does provide probably the best uh, moment arm or mechanical advantage of the deltoid. One of the things that I think is also interesting is there's there's external rotation data. Now, postoperatively with the seven years minimum seven years follow up, the external rotation in the lateralized group is 39 degrees, and in the medialized group, it's so it's. Am I reading that correctly? You have better external rotation in the medialized than the lateralized group at final follow-up. Uh, yes, that is what the numbers showed, and that was surprising to us because my perception before looking at the numbers was that I was subjectively observing more external rotation with the lateralized design. Why do you think that might be? Um, I think it may be uh, because maybe we had uh, patients um, with an intact teres minor in a large proportion of uh, of the cases. That may be one of the reasons. The other reasons may have been that when we were using the DGO prosthesis, if for the most part we were using the smallest possible glenosphere because that was the trend back then. Whereas with the Gramonte style, we actually used the largest possible glenosphere. And it was based on training more than anything. So I wonder if the arc of rotation that was allowed by a largest glenosphere compensated for the fact that the lateralized component potentially tensions the posterior deltoid and calf better. But to be honest, I am not 100% sure I understand why that was the finding. Yeah, that's such an interesting insight into glenosphere. That's so helpful in interpretation of these results. Bob, when you look at this study, how does it, how does it change the way you perceive reverse? Um, well, I think the first thing is that it actually shows that both implant designs uh, have excellent long-term survivorship and outcomes. So independent of the differences that you kind of allude to between the two designs, um, it still shows that out to 10 years, both of them, you know, create significant advantage for the patient. So I think uh, whether you're uh, more of a lateralized design or a medialized design um, in, in one of those camps, um, you should be comfortable that the outcomes uh, the patients will do well and that you, you should be happy with the outcomes. Um, I, I agree that the, the findings are in on, honestly contrast to what Mark has reported in his own data, which is actually flipped, better external rotation and potentially maybe a, a better um, elevation. The other thing that I noticed that I want to ask Joaquin was, um, 
if you look at the notching rates, the notching rates is 77% for a medialized sphere design. That's very comparable to most of the Grimaud-style uh, data that's published from France. But if you look at the, um, the lateralized design, the notching rates were about 47%, it looks like, in this study. And in Mark's long-term data that Derek Cuff published, they went from 0% at uh, two years to out to 10% at uh, 10 years. So why, why do you think that the notching rates were higher in your series, and probably substantially so, as opposed to what Frankel reported? And do you think that that has any influence with regards to the outcomes that you're seeing um, in terms of range of motion? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when we first went through the x-rays, um, I was surprised to see that there was a fair amount of notching in the digital prosthesis at 10 years. Now, most of them were grade one, so uh, the relevant notching was much, much more common in the medialized prosthesis. And I think the explanation is that we were placing the glenoid component uh, in the classic central anatomic location, so we were not placing the component low. So even though the digital prosthesis provided lateralized glenoid and a 135 polyethylene angle, because we were moving the whole glenoid superiorly, we were still finding the opportunity for the medial aspect of the polyethylene to conflict with the lower medial aspect of the scapula. So, again, this is part of the learning curve. And uh, back then, when we were doing a reverse, at least the way I was doing them, and I think Dr. Coffey was doing it the same way, and Dr. Sperling, we placed the component in the center of the gland. We hadn't really uh, grasped the idea of uh, moving the component on the lower part. That came out later as we were doing these cases. So I think that's the most likely explanation. Joaquin, do you think that also that potentially um, the decision with regards to the glenosphere in the DJO prosthesis could have an influence with regards to both range of motion and notching? Meaning yes. that in a, in a classic Grimaud-style implant, at least back in 2004, there was one glenosphere, 36 medialized glenosphere. That's it. You didn't have any options. Whereas even back then in the DJO implant, that there were multiple options and making a decision about which of those spheres that were used could have had a potentially significant impact on both range of motion as well as notching. And that may be the reason why there are differences in this series, say, versus the designer series. I would agree completely with uh, that observation, Bob. Uh, because, uh, as I said, we were using the smaller glenospheres for the DJO. So uh, if you think about a sphere being placed more on the superior aspect of the glenoid than being a smaller, it's very easy to mentally understand how the polyethylene will contact glenoid bone and thus create notching. So, as I said, this is a historical uh, a cohort of patients where we were in our learning curve. Uh, and I think it's important to emphasize also that these were old patients. So the mean age of this patient was uh, almost 74 years, which means that if you were to follow all of those patients, which we couldn't, but if you were, uh, 10 years, the mean age would be 84 years. And of course, between 75 and 85, many patients are less active, I, I would agree, I would um, I think. Uh, so I think it's important not to fully extrapolate this data uh, to what we're doing currently with better understanding of the technique, better designs, and a more active population too. Peter, can I ask Joaquin one more question? Oh, of course, yeah. Okay. Um, 
you know, last year you published your results of reverse shoulder replacement going, moving onward from 2009. Um, and I think you had over 1,500 cases that you actually published. Um, and uh, so it's interesting for me to kind of put those two papers, this one and that one, kind of, you know, side by side. And clearly there's differences um, and uh, between those the, the two uh, studies. The, the implants were were different as well, as far as I, I could understand, um, that um, you used even a different implant company in that, that series. And um, and it seemed like your complication rates, reoperation rates were almost cut in half in, in that series. Do you think that um, the differences that you were finding in that series were due to your learning curve? Or do you think that it was due to the implant design that you were using, and maybe if you could maybe just get into what the, the that study was in terms of the design that you used and how that is a little bit different than the designs that were used in this study. Um, and I, I think it might be helpful for listeners because many of them probably have read that paper, and then to try to put in context that data to this data, I think it would be helpful from to, to hear from the author. Yeah, that is a very, very good question, Bob. Thank you very much. So the paper that uh, Dr. Tashian is uh, mentioning um, was a paper that we did to try to understand what is our reoperation rate. So the, the primary outcome was reoperation rates once we thought we were over the learning curve. So this paper that we're discussing today uh, ends in 2008, and then the, we thought that in four years uh, we had a reasonable um, you know, learning experience and we had passed probably a learning curve, and then the following uh, years, uh, we looked at uh, all reverses done by all of us, this is including six different orthopedic surgeons, and there were multiple designs. So there were some DJOs, there were some DePews, there were some biomeds, uh, and so on. And uh, to your point, the reoperation rate um, basically was cut in half. Um, and I think it's a combination of learning curve and implant improvement. I was a little worried uh, looking at those numbers because we had also expanded the diagnosis. Uh, so uh, as you expand to more active patients and different diagnoses, potentially you could see an increase in failures because of the younger patients being more active. But I think the combination of better implants and having passed the learning curve was able to trump the fact that we were expanding to more risky diagnosis. Thank you. It's so interesting when we have when we have data from different time periods because so much changes. It's so hard to interpret data because of the change, not only in the indications, but also the implants and also our technique. Everything's changing at the same time. There's no one single variable um, to be able to really compare those things. That is correct. Well, I think the Mayo Clinic is to be congratulated for such a great outcome, even very early on with these prostheses and um, as 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 Bob mentioned, both both of these prostheses have, I think, remarkably good outcomes at long-term follow-up. Um, and again, I think the differences between them are super interesting to hear from, from you, Joaquin, to understand not only the implant design, but also our technique and place in the implant and how that may affect a lot of the outcome in terms of notching rate and um, range of motion. And certainly, we're coming to understand that better and better. And I'm hopeful that with time, as we understand that better, we can optimize the outcome of this operation.
Yeah, for me, the learning curve is I think about what I was thinking in 04 and how I think today is that back then I was convinced that glenoid loosening would be the kiss of death of reverse. And it turns out that there are other complications that can really complicate the patients and the surgeon's lives, such as deep infection, dislocation, fracture of the spine. Those occurred, but glenoid loosening in the primary setting seems to be very reliable, even with all the implants. Um, I am more worried about the revision cohort. You know, we're looking now into outcomes of revision surgery, and I don't think it's the same. So I think it's important, again, to convey the message to the audience that this is just primary orthoplasty in a slightly older patients with catheter arthropathy. Uh, the other paper that Toto Tasha mentioned is more all diagnosis younger patients, but I think the revision population throws a completely different challenge in terms of glenoid fixation. And that's important to emphasize to the listeners. Anything else to add, Bob? Uh, no, I think this is great. I completely agree with uh, Joaquin with regards to the revision population. We have even looked in, Peter and I have looked in our own population here, and um, our complication rates were uh, close to double in, uh, in the um, revision population as opposed to primary. And um, you definitely start to include other complications that you don't necessarily have in a primary reverse including base plate uh, issues because many of those revisions have required bone grafting or more extensive uh, surgery. So um, I think that is an extremely important point of this paper, as well as the, the other paper we mentioned, that you have to put this in context of primary arthroplasty. But um, otherwise, I, I'm, I look forward to seeing the results of the revision work that you guys are putting together. And um, I think this is just a, a tremendous amount of work and uh, and it really adds a lot of insight uh, into uh, uh, how these implants work over a long period of time. Certainly, it's a, a great accomplishment. Thank you both for doing this with me. Great, great study, Joaquin. Thank you both again. Thank you very much and have a great day. Thanks, Peter. I'm here with Dr. Willem A. Bender from SUNY Downstate. Dr. A. Bender, how are you? Uh, doing well. Thanks for having me. Dr. Dane Salazar from Loyola in Chicago is here as our guest co-host. Dane, how are you? Doing well. Thank you, Peter. We're here to discuss Dr. Abinder's project entitled The Presence of Stress Shielding Following Stemless Anatomic Total Shoulder Arthroplasty. This project is one he completed while in fellowship with George Athwell at the University of Western Ontario. Dr. Abinder, can you give us a high-level summary of your project? Absolutely. So um, this is a study where we looked at uh, stress shielding of the uh, proximal humerus using one particular um, stemless implant that uh, involves a uh, anchor peg fixation. Um, this was part of a previously reported on a series from an uh, IDE study and a post-market uh, analysis study out of Europe. Uh, so looked at 152 prospectively followed uh, stemless total shoulder arthroplasties with a single implant done by 21 surgeons uh, around the world. And we looked at serial radiographs up to 24 months. And we really looked at just stress shielding, particularly in uh, six different zones, three on the uh, AP radiograph and three on the lateral radiograph. And what we found was that the overall rate of stress shielding uh, was about 41 to, uh, percent. So that was 61 of the shoulders. And some involved multiple uh, regions. Um, but we also graded it based on mild, moderate, or severe scale, uh, with mild just showing a decreased bone uh, density over time, 
the moderate grading was where there was some cortical thinning uh, in that region. Uh, and the severe uh, cases were those where there was uh, true bone loss. Um, and the severe cases, there were only 11, so about 7% of the shoulders, um, which kind of is in line with some of the previously reported uh, outcomes with different um, Im implants in particular. Um, you know, the one thing we uh, didn't have initially and we've kind of worked on more recently is looking at the clinical and functional outcomes as well. And so the, the functional outcomes really aren't uh, different between those with or without stress shielding. Uh, and we're still really analyzing the clinical uh, portion in terms of range of motion um, in this short-term uh, follow-up. Um, so I think uh, it, it warrants some further follow-up uh, in terms of uh, time points. Um, but this seems to be in line with the prior uh, uh, studies of uh, similar implants. So in which specific regions did you see the worst stress shielding, in the calcar and the tuberosity? Yeah, so with this implant, it was uh, more severe uh, in the calcar. Um, uh, for instance, there was 15 uh, cases uh, where it just involved the calcar. Um, and if it just involved the tuberosity, it only occurred in five cases, which is the opposite of uh, a hollow screw design that's been reported on, where most of the uh, bone loss and stress shielding was in the greater tuberosity region. Now, why do you think that is? Tell us about what 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 changes you might expect with the differences in fixation of the implants and how that maybe how this implant loads the tuberosity more than loads the calcar and prior implants. Yeah, so that's a great question. I think that's something that, you know, more work definitely needs to be done on. Uh, Dr. Athol is a great mentor of mine. He's done some great finite element analysis studies that show that there is difference in loading depending on the fixation. Um, you know, one thing we tried to look at with the, with the anchor uh, peg design, how close that anchor um, got in contact with the lateral cortex, um, and as well as in the anterior posterior direction. And I, I suspect that may have an effect on how it loads the uh, tuberosity. Um, although I think with our numbers, we weren't able to show any significance uh, from that standpoint. So you alluded to your uh, previous work on the finite element analysis, and um, that work had kind of uh, shown the posterior and lateral quadrant. Um, the implant that this study was on, was that a central or peripheral or boundary crossing? So it's a, it's a, uh, a boundary crossing design. So it's a, it was the uh, uh, Zimmer biometritis implant. Okay. Now tell us, do you, do you think these findings for you personally are convincing enough that a stemless humeral implant should be our go-to component? Or do you look at these findings and say, this is kind of worrisome and we should follow it further before we make that our number one option for anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty? You know, I think that's a great question. I think that's what everyone's wrestling with. And I, and I, and I, I think as anything in orthopedics, we always need more data. Um, for me, you know, having looked at this data myself, there's certain patients in this series that did have radiographs that went out to three, four, and five years. Um, and those that had stress shielding, at least it, it's a very small number, just about a dozen, but it was not progressive. Um, so, it, you know, questions whether or not it stops at this time point. Um, with the other uh, implant that I alluded to in the other studies, those had about five or six year data, but I still think we need to uh, study these 
um, out further uh, for sure before uh, kind of jumping on whether this is the go-to. In, in your own clinical practice, are you using majority of stemless implants? I am, um, and, and you know, from a bone preservation standpoint, and, and whether or not that's you know my fellowship training bias or not, I think that certainly has a little bit of a uh, impact on it. But for me, it is a go-to. Um, uh, but I usually do have a, a short stem available in the room, you know, if I'm concerned about the bone quality uh, for any reason. How do you think these results compare to some of the prior results we've seen with short stems? Do you think the stemless device fixes some of the problems we were seeing with short stems or no? You know, I think with the data we have right now, it's hard to say definitively. You know, I was uh, fortunate to be involved in a uh, similar study um, during my residency at the Mayo Clinic, looking at a, a short stem design, looking at stress shielding there. Um, and the rate of severe stress shielding was actually lower um, in the short stem um, at much further follow-up. Um, so I think, you know, we, sh we should be optimistic in using the short stem, but I think it's with a little bit of caution with, as with uh, anything new in orthopedics. Dr. Salazar, and what's your go-to go option these days? Are you using a short stem or using a stemless device, are you using a standard length stem? Yeah, so in the overwhelming majority of cases, I'm using a metaphyseal short stem, but on a case-by-case -case basis, I will uh, go to a stemless implant, uh, especially in, in a lot younger people that I'm worried about bone preservation and uh, the need in the future for doing a revision. Um, but I, I do have to admit that some of my uh, algorithm is driven by cost. Uh, in our hospital system, uh, the stemless implant is depending on uh, what uh, your go-to implant is, is either twice or three times as much as a short metaphyseal stem. So um, admittedly, that, that ratio may be different if the prices were the same in our hospital system. And I had a quick technical question about your cohort. Um, was Were all the patients in your cohort a uh, subscapularis peel or a tenotomy or an LTO? Uh, that's a great question. So they, they were all, uh, it was about a third of each, uh, and it was really left up to uh, surgeon preference. Um, and we didn't uh, compare uh, those three. Have you had any issues, Dr. Salazar, with the with the lesser tuber osteotomy and stemless implants? Are you using that technique still, or have you gone to appeal for those patients? I'm still using it, but what I've noticed is when I do a stemless implant, I have to uh, change the way I do the technical procedure. I usually take uh, a much smaller uh, osteotomy, what I would call uh, basically a wafer, because I want to preserve that anterior bone. And then the fixation is a little bit different uh, because uh, previously with a metaphyseal stem, I would go around the stem and use the implant as an anchor. And now really I'm uh, having to go uh, through the, the uh, flutes uh, in the implant. And so it does change some of my thinking. And I have kind of uh, gone back and forth in my own mind uh, whether there's still a lot of advantage to having a lesser tuberosity osteotomy in, in the stemless realm. And I have thought about going to either a peel or a tenotomy, but the reason I haven't is because I like 
being to being able to radiographically follow my subscapularis in my post-operative x-rays. Dr. Bender, is there anything else about the study that you think our listeners should know? No, I think we've uh, really highlighted uh, the main points, and I think it's just um, uh, being able to follow these implants out a little bit further would be um, uh, helpful to everyone, I think, in the future. Certainly, it's such an interesting thing to hear about. Um, you know, as as we move into what I think will we be a largely stemless era in shoulder arthroplasty, we'll definitely need to understand the implications of those devices, not only for stress shielding, but also for our management of the subscapularis and uh, also, in terms of how it affects our revisions down the road, and stress shielding is going to be an important part of that. So, I think this is a great study, Dr. Abender. I really appreciate you both for doing this with me. Um, and um, I hope you folks take care. Stay safe. Stay safe out there. Likewise, and thank you very much for having me. Quite an honor. Thanks a lot. Great study. Congratulations on really su superior work. I'm here with Dr. Bruce Miller from the University of Michigan. Dr. Miller, how are you? Good, thank you. Dr. Nobu Yamamoto from Tohoku University in Japan is here as our guest co-host. Nobu, how are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. We are here to discuss Dr. Miller's project entitled Surgical versus Non-Surgical Management of Rotator Cuff Tears, a Propensity-Matched Analysis. Dr. Miller, can you give us a high-level summary of this project? Uh, certainly. Um, we know that uh, rotator cuff disease is very common, and despite it being one of the most common maladies of, of mankind in the musculoskeletal system, there's really no clear treatment algorithm for it. We know that patients with uh, full thickness symptomatic rotator cuff tears do well with physical therapy. We know they also do well with surgical management, but it's not clear if there's a best option presently. So the purpose of this paper was to look at a very uh, large database that we maintain here at the University of Michigan and um, as best as possible uh, compare our surgical experience with our non-surgical experience and uh, report those results. And that's that's a high-level goal. What were some of the main findings of, of this analysis? I'll summarize the findings um, as follows. What's clear is that patients who had symptomatic cuff tears reported improved patient-reported outcomes after non-operative treatment, I would say after both non-operative treatment and surgical repair. However, uh, the patients who were offered and elected to undergo surgical repair reported greater improvement in their outcome scores and reduced pain when they were compared with their non-operative cohorts. Which were the same? What, what were some of the most important outcomes you used here? Which which scores were you using? Um, we, we collect a number of. Well, th th this particular study uh, represents a cohort that's nested in, the, in a large registry of rotator cuff patients that I manage here at the University of Michigan. Um, we tend to use the WARC Western Ontario Rotator Cuff Ro Western Ontario Rotator Cuff Index as our primary outcome measure. We also have collected the American, uh, the, well, the ASES score, the SANE score, and a visual analog score for pain. But our primary outcome measure for this particular study was the work score. Now, interestingly, um, all the studies essentially trended uh, in parallel. 
Now, you, you've mentioned a couple of times this is a large database. Help us understand how many patients are there in this study? In this particular study, um, and then this is a matched pair analysis, we're looking at specifically 107 patients who had surgical repair with 107 patients who had non-surgical repair. Now, the overall uh, database or cohorts much longer, I'm sorry, much larger than that, um, but in order to uh, produce uh, appropriate matching groups for our, our study population, uh, it, necess it necessitated a, a smaller uh, matched size. Now, you've mentioned that the use, you've used propensity matching. Give us a better understanding for how that gives us a better answer for this kind of study than a typical retrospective comparative study. Well, a retrospective study um, is often plagued by um, many biases, confounding biases. Um, we don't know, looking back retrospectively, um, for example, what some of the demographics were at baseline or where, uh, why a surgeon may have offered a particular surgical treatment to one patient and not another. Um, we also know that there's a number of factors that likely contribute to the outcome of our rotator cuff treatments. Uh, age, rotator cuff their size, quality of rotator cuff musculature. Um, so propensity score matching allows us to take a two patient comparative groups and match them as best as possible to a number of factors that we believe influence the outcome. And that allows us to compare our two treatment options as best as possible. It's not a randomized trial. Um, our treatment was not allocated at the time of enrollment. However, this particular statistical method allows us to approximate a randomized trial as best we can. Some of the factors that really have an effect on outcome after rotator cuff tear are are, are anatomic factors like the size of the tear and atrophy of muscles. Are those the kind of things that you have in your single institution database that maybe we might be lacking from larger larger national databases? Um, we do. So we collect uh, a very robust series of uh, data at uh, baseline, so a lot of demographic data, but also um, some anatomical data. And then you, you mentioned many of those. Um, um, the size of the rotator cuff tear, um, the degree of muscle atrophy, the degree of fatty degeneration. Um, but again, our, you know, our study and our registry, as well as many databases, are, are limited by what we think is important at the time of initiation of a study. And you know, with time and with knowledge, sometimes we should collect other things. But that's where we are presently. One of the things I think is interesting about this study is that it it's concordant with a couple of other recent studies. So Dr. Jane's analysis of the row cohort with a similar methodology showed a similar finding. And then obviously Moosemeyer's tenure analysis of his randomized clinical trial, both of which show superior outcomes for operative as compared to non-operative treatment of rotator cuff tears. With this kind of mounting evidence, are you recommending non-operative treatment or are you more 
are, are you becoming more and more heavy on recommending operative treatment when you see a patient with a rotator cuff tear now? Well, I don't think it's uh, fair to generalize treatment in terms of all comers. I mean, we know, for example, that we may be more likely to offer surgery to a younger patient. Um, we may certainly be more likely to offer surgery to someone who had a traumatic tear, so a previously asymptomatic shoulder that has a known traumatic event and has a new onset tear. Um, though I, I think those fall into a different category. But when all else is equal, uh, it looks like uh, surgical outcomes are better. So I, I think it is uh, slowly influencing uh, my counseling and decision-making, just like every other take-home message uh, has been that's come out of our, our large database over time. And Noble, I, I know that you're in a very different medical system. Mm -hmm. To help us to understand, as all this evidence comes out about mm. surgical treatment in, in, in a setting where you have may, maybe not as many surgical days to offer, how is, how is this changing the way that you're practicing in Sendai? Uh, yeah, uh, as you know, the, our medical system is different from the U.S. medical system. And uh, especially uh, in our institute, uh, first, uh, we choose a conservative treatment for patient with rotator cuff tear. And uh, if the conservative treatment failed, we perform the surgical treatment. And uh, uh, I, I have a several questions to Dr. Miller. And the, the first, uh, the Cafeteria group had a better outcome, but the subjective and objective score than the conservative treatment group. I'm interested in which subject scores improved in the cafeteria group. Uh, work has a four domains, physical symptom, sport, recreation, work, lifestyle, and emotions. Among four domains, which one improved? Um, you know, that, that's an excellent question, and, and I am unfortunately not prepared to answer that because we mm. did not look at uh, the independent domains within each outcome variable. That's certainly something we can do and report uh, um, in another uh, vehicle if possible. Always a hard thing to do with some scores, too. The ASCS uh, score in particular is not, not, does not divide as cleanly maybe into those domains as, as you know, maybe a PF. 12 or, you know, th those, there's some scores are more amenable to that than others. But I think that's a great, just a great point, Noble, about how these treatments probably do differ in their outcomes, depending on which domain you examine specifically. You know, I, I will, I will add that pain uh, seems to be weighted pretty heavily in, in many of these patient reported outcomes. And we also um, report pain as a visual analog scale outcome independent and that seems to be uh, a dominating trend here that, that patients' pain both by itself and also as it drives the other outcome measures seems to improve dramatically with surgery relative to non-surgical management. Did you have another question, Inobu? Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, another question is uh, looking at the beta 
baseline data, there was no significant difference of tear side between surgical group and non-surgical group. But you divided the tear side into the two, small, smaller than three centimeter and larger than three centimeter. Do you have any data which you divided into four small, moderate, large, massive tear according to the copied classification? Are there any difference between them? Because uh, it is well known that the clinical outcome of the small to moderate tears are better than the, those of large to massive tears. Yes, you, you pose uh, another excellent yet challenging question. Um, given the statistical methodology of a propensity score matching, um, we were a bit limited into how many factors we could incorporate into our patient matching. So um, the fewer factors you match for, the smaller the overall sample size. So um, after uh, playing with all the factors that we had under our control, we decided in order to improve the, the power uh, of, of our particular study question, that we would dichotomize tear size between less than three centimeters and greater than three mm -hmm. centimeters, knowing that you know that's not necessarily uh, the best way to do so. Because mm. that's such an interesting insight into this methodology that I think is relatively new to us as orthopedic surgeons. That's I, I appreciate you going through that with us. That's really helpful. You know, I will add that we we have uh, out of our registry published um, in the last year or so. Um, a study that, that addresses that question in particular. It's does tear size, but also does tear morphology affect patient reported outcomes after surgical repair? And interestingly, it did not in our database. Is your feeling that that would be true if you had healing outcomes? Like, do you think that the tear size has an, in, has an influence on the likelihood that the tendon will heal? Well, I, I, I think uh, I would say, of course, I think that's been substantiated in a number of studies, including some work we've done here. Um, but again, one, one of the limitations of doing this type of registry or database research is um, you decide early in the process what types of information you want to collect. And in retrospect, you kind of wish you had had some OEM oh yeah moments earlier, but we, uh, for 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 a number of reasons, one of which is cost, we elected not to include um, any imaging studies uh, in our registry, post-operative imaging studies, um, which I think in retrospect now would have been remarkably helpful to answer these types of questions. Certainly those kind of studies are so so expensive to do, so time consuming, and they certainly can influence your follow up rate, which is, as you know, is a so it's it's there's no right answer there. No, well, I know you guys have done a lot of great uh, research with serial imaging mm -hmm. on rotator cuff. Are mm -hmm. um, did you have any other any any other things to add? Any other ways in which you think this helps us going forward, Nobu? Uh yeah. Uh... My qu another question is about surgical technique. Uh, regarding the surgical technique, tear 
In, in your paper, tears of the less than one centimeter were repaired using the single row repair, and uh, tears of greater than one centimeter were repaired using the dual row technique. But even for the last two massive tears, did you perform a, a double row technique? Because uh, sometimes it's difficult to perform a primary repair, and uh, in your cases, the, those cases are excluded in this study? Um, uh, I'll answer that the best I can. So th this, this study reflects a database which allows us to do what I would consider kind of pragmatic clinical trials, real-world clinical trials. Um, treatment allocation, was not standardized, for example, when a patient comes in, they were mm. allocated after a real-world discussion between the patient and the surgeon discussing both treatment options. Similarly, we did not in any way standardize our surgical care. Um, these patients uh, were under the care of three experienced fellowship-trained shoulder surgeons, and um, the repair of, of, of each tear was individualized. So, in general, the smaller tears were treated with single row repair, the larger tears with double row repair. But again, that wasn't uh, standardized in any systematic way. I think it simply reflects um, our practice and therefore probably has pretty good generalizability, I think. Well, I, I really appreciate Dr. Miller, you're going through the findings of this study with us. I think it's a, I think it's a great study. I think you guys did a, a, an amazing job. I mean, I think it's helpful to understand its limitations, but also I don't want to belittle this accomplishment because I'm sure that it's years and years of work and data. Um, and I think that it, it aids to a, a growing body of understanding of the differences between operative and non-operative treatment of rotator cuff tears that it seems like, as you mentioned, and certainly as I've found in my practice, they're probably creeping into the way we, we discuss this treatment with patients. So thank you again. Great study. I appreciate both appreciate your, your both of your willingness to do this with me. Um, thank you very much. And, and, and a quick plug, um, this study is not perfect. However, um, the Moon Group, um, of, of which I'm a member, has is about two years into a randomized trial addressing this, this very same question. It's called the ARC trial arthroscopic rotator cuff repair, and uh, this is a true randomized trial of surgical and non-surgical patients. Um, we're, again, several years into uh, enrollment, and I think um, that will answer uh, in a very valuable uh, and valid way a lot of the shortcomings of, uh, of my current paper that we're discussing. Certainly excited to see those results and see how they compare to the results of Moose Meyer or Here's Pink and all the other studies that have been done. And certainly these, these efforts are so important for us to make sure we do the right things for our patients that have this disease. I'm here with Dr. Luke O from Harvard. Luke, how are you? Doing very well. Thanks for having me. Dr. Matt Smith from Washington University in St. Louis is here as our guest co-host. Matt, how are you? How are you? Doing great. Thanks, Peter. We are here to discuss Luke's project entitled Elbow Excess Opening on Stress Radiographs is Not Related to Ulnar Collateral Ligament Injury Severity in Throwers. Luke, can you give us a high-level summary of this project? Sure, it'll be my pleasure. So just as a way of background, Peter, um, stress radiography uh, in the elbow 
uh, historically measured medial joint space opening, but its value in the management of throwing athletes is unclear uh, in comparison to other imaging modalities such as ultrasound and MRI. So the purpose of the study was to analyze the relationship between medial joint opening and ulnar collateral ligament injury severity as determined on uh, an MRI that they may have um, subsequently obtained, as well as uh, exploring the different factors that uh, may be related to uh, the unexpected finding of greater opening of the uninjured elbow with valgus rest x-ray compared to the injured side, which is referred to as uh, negative excess opening. So this was a retrospective analysis of 74 consecutive patients uh, who underwent stress radiographs uh, in the clinical workup for medial elbow pain uh, who had a suspicion for UCL injury. We uh, recorded demographic and clinical data uh, that included uh, sport, age, duration of symptoms, range of motion, um, UCL tendonous, moving valgus stress test, flexor, pronator, tendonous, et cetera. Um, we looked at their subsequent MRIs to grade the severity of UCL injury, and we kept it simple. Uh, for our purposes in this paper, we just wanted to determine uh, if the anterior bundle was uh, one intact, uh, or two had a partial tear, or three had a full thickness tear. Uh, we also noted the status of the flexor pronator muscles, so if there was edema or other injury, uh, as well as the presence of any loose bodies or posterior ossifides. Our results showed that on the injured elbow, the valgus rest x-rays demonstrated a statistically significant difference uh, between the non-stress view and the stress view, but only when there was a full thickness tear. If there was a partial tear, there was no statistically significant difference. Also, when comparing the stress views of the uninjured side with the injured side, there was no statistically significant difference. Well, this last part, uh, this is not surprising because different from what you would expect, the literature reported 31% of excess opening on the uninjured side compared to the injured side with valgus stress. In our study, we noted 22% of such cases. So this means that the valgus stress x-rays by definition, at baseline, are not very reliable. So with the improved technology and techniques with stress ultrasound and MRI, the role of static valgus x-rays uh, performed at 30 degrees of flexion does not appear to be as impactful in our decision-making today. One of the things that I think is so interesting here is you talked about the fact that the uninjured arm has excess opening and often even with a partial tear you see no excess opening do you think the flexor pronator is the reason for a lot of your findings like for instance if you could think in your head if you could redo this same study but have all the patients be under anesthesia do you think your findings would be the same or different it certainly could be different peter one of the things that um, came to my mind when i was reflecting on this is that when you place the athlete's um, arms into the telos valgus stress device, there are different rollers placed where you're supposed to position the arm and it guides the hand so that it recreates a 30 degree flexion angle. Um, and as you place valgus stress, some of the athletes will grip onto the roller and tighten them. And whether that's because um, it creates some amount of discomfort 
Um, it's unclear to me, but if you do that and you tighten up the flexor pronators, it's possible that they're stabilizing the elbow, uh, especially the medial side, more so than if they have uh, the same test done on the uninjured side and they don't have as much pain, it's possible that they are not gripping as hard. So another way that we could redo the study is by having them place their hand in between all the rollers but ask them not to grip the rollers. And certainly if this could be done under some semblance of anesthesia where they're relaxed um, or give them uh, Botox or something that could be temporary because anesthesia uh, could be cumbersome, obviously. Uh, but theoretically, under that scenario, it's possible that we would have a much uh, uh, more cleaner look at the true uh, valgus uh, opening on the medial side. Did you note in your study any players that had calcifications within the ligament? And did that affect how much opening you see? I've often thought that if you see calcification, certainly that should make the ligament stiffer. But I wonder it, if maybe you saw that frequently enough that you could notice that in your data. Yes, so um, we didn't have very many uh, athletes with calcification, although there were some, and we did not see a difference. Uh, but again, the numbers were small, so it's hard to make a complete determination. Luke, do you have any sense of whether a partial tear at the humeral attachment or a partial tear at the sublime tubercle made a difference in terms of the numbers that you saw with the stress radiographs? Yes, in our series, um, we did not see a difference between proximal versus distal tears, either complete or um, uh, partial within each group. I think one of the interesting take-homes from your study is potential implications for our physical examination of the elbow. Specifically, it seems like we're really not going to be able to elicit actual laxity in exam, although certainly you may have subjective apprehension or pain. Walk us through how you examine the, the UCL, and does this study affect that for you? Yes. Um, uh, what it taught me is that many of the things that we do on physical exam um, uh, have such an important role, as well as the history, and that whether it's an MRI ultrasound or valgus um, stress x-rays, uh, they are all one component of many factors that we need to consider as we treat these athletes. Uh, when I perform a physical exam, I look for both active and passive range of motion because active range of motion tells me if they have their um, uh, normal uh, range of motion versus some restriction. Uh, passive range of motion helps to determine things like impingement and whether there's a soft or hard uh, bony end feel. Um, and when we're performing uh, examinations on the medial side, we need to assess the role of the ulnar nerve um, in addition to the flexor pronator and the ulnar collateral ligament in terms of tenderness. Uh, and also, during the moving valgus stress test, practically it's performed from 120 degrees to 70 degrees and in that arc, because we know that um, uh, at the terminal end ranges of motion and at terminal uh, end ranges of flexion and extension, uh, the bony anatomy uh, confers quite a bit of stability to the elbow. So from uh, that, uh, what I wonder is whether or not we should perform uh, the stress radiographs at greater degrees of flexion than the traditional historical 30 degrees that had been published since the uh, mid-90s. Um, so those are some of the things that I'm thinking about, Peter. Perhaps um, uh, the valgus stress x-rays that should be done at greater flexion angles, similarly to when a stress ultrasound is done, which is typically done at 90 degrees of flexion using gravity uh, valgus stress. And that may potentially um, allow us to have a better 
um, grasp of what's happening to the medial side of the uh, elbow. How about you, Matt? I know you have a busy practice in St. Louis taking care of a, a lot of youth, adolescent, and, and higher level baseball players. What role for you does finding laxity on exam play in your workup or management of pitchers? Uh, Peter, that's a great question. I would tell you that I think the patients that I see that have a true significant injury to the onocleidal ligament, you might be able to pick up some subtle laxity on exam. It's more about the pain that they experience when you actually place the elbow in a stressed position. Uh, I think the tenderness in the uh, onocleidal ligament region uh, with the uh, pain experience with the moving valgus chest test is far more uh, helpful for me than actually feeling some laxity that happens through the elbow. And, and it's a challenge because a lot of these people who come in are not full fitness tears. They're, they're partial injuries or chronic attritional injuries that, uh, that really don't manifest as any discomfort until they really start to uh, crank on the elbow with the throwing motion. And that actually, Luke, brings up another question. Uh, what is your algorithm for doing a stress radiograph? Are, are you doing that as your screening exam, or are you doing that as a uh, supplement to the MRI findings that you see? Yes, so uh, the radiographs are done at the time of their initial consultation appointment, so everyone gets a standard set of uh, x-rays that includes uh, an AP, uh, lateral, uh, internal and external obliques, uh, as well as uh, non-stress and stress radiographs at that time. And um, after the initial evaluation is when we determine whether or not they're going to get an MRI subsequently. How often does that stress radiograph change your decision to get an MRI if they have the clinical findings of pain with moving valgus stress tests and tenderness over the ligament? Well, excellent question, Matt. That uh, uh, hits it on the nose. And so uh, in my practice, uh, the stress radiographs have not really altered um, uh, whether or not I get an MRI. If there are sufficient clinical findings, as you mentioned, um, it's about functional um, uh, functionality of that ligament. So even if there isn't uh, a significant laxity on the exam, if they have a ton of pain while throwing uh, and have the classic pain at the late cocking early acceleration phase, then uh, that's a trigger for an MRI for me. And so um, if the stress radiographs are reassuring, that has not stopped me from getting an MRI if the rest of the clinical uh, history and findings are suggestive of an injury to the medial side of the elbow. And as a result, uh, the vast majority of athletes are getting an MRI um, based on history and physical rather than the results of these stress radiographs. And so we've actually started a value-based analysis, and uh, we hope to be able to report this soon. Um, but as a pre preview, uh, since since most, if not all, cases of medial elbow pain uh, in a throwing athlete ultimately end up getting an MRI in my practice, the overall utility of valgus stress x-rays uh, really seem limited at this point, at least my practice. Yeah, and I would echo that, excuse me, I would echo that uh, sentiment, uh, again, that my practice has shifted from doing stress radiographs for for a couple reasons. The one is if you don't have a telos machine where you can, you know, clearly control the angle of flexion, uh, sometimes as you change the arm position during the, the stress portion of the exam, it's, it can be a little bit difficult to interpret what you're seeing. Um, and I've, again, I, have, I haven't seen that it's changed my uh, planning primarily when I decide if I'm going to do an MRI or not. 
the thing I th- think that's for at least in my practice that is a challenge is uh, you've, you've got an MRI, I typically get an MR arthrogram for these patients uh, and you have an MR arthrogram with some subtle findings of, you know, chronic thickening of the ligament or subtle signal change in the ligament with some mild discomfort. Um, you know, what, are they competent or incompetent in that ligament? And that's the hard part. So I've, I've moved to more doing the stress ultrasound evaluation as a supplement to the MRI uh, to help make some determinations of whether or not they have a competent ligament. Certainly, we've uh, we've found stress ultrasound to be useful too. And you mentioned it earlier, Luke, that stress dynamic ultrasound can be can be useful in the evaluation of the ligament. We've recently shown in a study with the Angels that actually the laxity of the ligament even changes during the course of the season. The ligament becomes more lax during the season. Tell us, Luke, now that you have all this data, is this going to help you in the interpretation of stress ultrasound? I'm not an expert in stress ultrasound, and I have colleagues who are, so I rely on their uh, guidance about this. Um, but uh, uh, similar to you guys, I am relying more on stress ultrasound versus static stress radiographs. Um, just to clarify for everyone, this study was performed with everyone getting their stress radiographs with the telos valgus stress device. Uh, so that limits the amount of internal or external rotation uh, of the upper extremity while the valgus stress is applied. But nevertheless, I think the results tell me that um, um, it may not uh, play as big of a role uh, for most people uh, nowadays. I guess my question more is, are the numbers comparable? Like, could you take all of the data that you have and use it to help you in the interpretation of stress ultrasound numbers? Or have you found that, that those things don't compute? Yes, for me, uh, Peter, uh, thanks for that clarification. It, it hasn't uh, been something that uh, I found to be correlative. So perhaps it's because the stress radiographs are done um, at 30 degrees of flexion, and stress ultrasound tends to be done more at 90 degrees of flexion and gravity uh, valgus. There have been some groups who have been performing stress ultrasound um, uh, while the arm is placed into a telos valgus uh, uh, device, but that only allows a static uh, evaluation at specific uh, angles of flexion. And uh, for my colleagues, their preference is to perform the stress ultrasound uh, while they're moving the elbow dynamically. That's really, that's super interesting. You know, it's, uh, we've had, we've struggled to determine whether 30 or 90 is better for stress ultrasound. Our own results have suggested 30 is better. Sakati's work um, was was all at 30. Matt, when you're getting a stress ultrasound in, at WashU, is it you more commonly at 30 or more commonly at 90, or, or, or are people getting both? Uh, we're trying to do a dynamic assessment, and if uh, if there's no ulnar humeral gapping at uh, 30 degrees, then we'll move them into the 90-degree position to see if that changes anything, because I think it does um, uh, add the benefit of being able to see different positions uh, with the ultrasound. And, and I think that there are there are probably a handful of cases that I've seen that the data at 30 is different than the data at 90, and that's helped us uh, make a decision. Again, going back to, to UCL injuries, I mean, most of this is a clinical diagnosis. Um, so we're trying to get enough information to make a good clinical judgment as to, you know, what the integrity of the ligament is. But um, but a lot of times this is a clinical diagnosis. And if, if we are not able to generate the kind of stresses that they're generating uh, during a pitching motion and they have some findings of ligament, uh, injury on MRI and their clinical exam correlates to UCL pain, it's really hard not to do something to help them with that. 
Well, Luke, it's certainly a great study, and um, I think it's provided us with all sorts of uh, new conversation here. Is there anything else you found in the study you'd like to add or anything else, Matt, that uh, this has made you think about that you'd like to share with our listeners? Sure. I think um, I just want to echo Matt's last comments. Uh, all of the different diagnostic uh, studies that we utilize currently uh, are only one of the many different factors that go into the formula for decision making. And that whether it's an MRI, MR arthrogram, stress ultrasound, a 30 degrees, 90 degrees, gravity valgus, or telos valgus, um, don't forget about the history and the clinical exam. And as Matt mentioned, it is a clinical diagnosis. So uh, we need to take all of that into account and remember uh, all of the um, uh, principles that we were taught in medical school. Yeah, and I, I think the other thing, you know, we seem to be um, discussing the lack of utility or, cl or clear utility of the stress uh, uh, x-rays. But if you're in a situation where you're trying to get more information and you don't have access to quality ultrasonographers um, and it's not clear, I would say use whatever um, options you have to convince yourself that they do truly have or don't have a ligament problem. So I think you can't throw the stress X-ray out of the uh, into the trash, where, you know, completely. Uh, I think it's uh, there is a valuable role to to adding to the um, knowledge that you have of that particular person's problem to see if you can make a good clinical decision for them. Well, thank you both for doing this with me. Great, great study, Luke. Um, congratulations on that. Uh, thank you again, and everybody stay safe out there. And that's it, folks. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our guests and guest hosts. For all of our Shoulder Noble listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.